Well, I'm glad to be back in Dubuque, and I want to thank many of you who are praying for me and the team that went left from here. Uh, four of us uh, joined a team that was in Haiti for uh, last week, and we uh, part of it was a medical team, part of it was kind of a repair team. We fixed some benches and desks for the students in the cafeteria area, and then they had a, a, a Lions Club team that was there doing an uh, eye clinic. Uh, those two teams, the medical team and the Lions team, uh, they uh, saw over 1,600 patients during the week. So they were uh, really busy and did a great job and made some uh, new contacts. And just want to let you know that in Je- July, the third weekend in July, Willem and Beth Charles, who are in charge of Mountaintop Ministries in uh in Haiti will be with us, so we're looking forward to that. But I do appreciate your prayers for me and for the team because we needed them. I needed them. Um, it would have been last week. Uh, uh, today I did a two-day seminar with the pastors, with some of the pastors that came in, and there were uh, between 50 and 60 pastors that were there. And so uh, Friday and Saturday uh, I shared and you know, we talked and had a good seminar, and then Sunday I was uh, had the privilege of preaching. And it's different when you're preaching through an interpreter. It's, you have to pace yourself, and of course Willem does a great job, but uh, it's, it's an interesting experience. We're starting a, a series this uh, weekend, and really it's one of those things where there's a lot of questions we have. Like, maybe these are some of the questions that you have may have had over the years. Is there a God? If there is, what is he like? Do we, does he really know everything? Can we trust the Bible? Um, is, is Jesus a man or is he God or is he both? Um, what, what about the Trinity? Uh, what does the Trinity really mean? And what is the Trinity? Who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, was, was man born with a sin nature or was he born with a completely clean slate? Um, is there only one name, uh, one way to heaven, or are there many ways to heaven? Um, is Jesus coming back? If so, when? <laughs> so these are all questions that we ask. And, you know, very early on, the church began to formulate a belief system. They had the Old Testament scriptures, and many of the New Testament writings were being completed. But they, they had to have a way to, in fact, if you go to Philippians chapter 2 and you look at a portion of that, many believe that was an early Christian confession of faith. When you see, when it talks about Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, that he became, uh, he, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And so, so you see all those different, different uh, patterns and stuff in, in Scripture. And so they began to develop creeds. That happened very early in the church where they had creeds. In fact, I'm pretty sure that most of you have heard one of the earliest creeds that church knows. And uh, it goes like this. I'll start reading it. You don't have to say it out loud, but you'll know it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand 
of the God the Father Almighty. Uh, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, uh, and the everlasting, and the everlasting uh, amen. Now, we know that, we call that the Apostles' Creed, but that creed probably formed somewhere around A.D. 200. So it was a very early creed of the church. Now, why did, they, why did the early church have creeds? Because there was a lot of heresy out there. There were a lot of false teachings. And so the church had to basically summarize what was the, the major things that they said, we believe these things, and these are essential beliefs for every Christian. Everybody who would be a follower of Jesus Christ would say, these beliefs are central to us. And so they came up with creeds. And uh, there's been many creeds down the years. There's baptismal, Baptist creeds, there's Methodist creeds, there's Presbyterian creeds, and you can read all those creeds. But this is one of the earliest creeds of the church. The Free Church, we're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, or we call it the EFCA, or we even shorten it more, we just call it the Free Church, uh, has what we call a statement of faith, and it's our creed. It's what we say is like the thing that, you know, these are the major beliefs uh, that we believe in certain doctrines and certain teachings from the Bible. And so it's something that's kind of like we're just following the tradition of the early church and saying, what do we believe as a church? And if you attend Hope Church, what can I expect? What are some of the, the foundational beliefs that we say, this is who we are, this is where we stand, these are the, the foundational beliefs uh, of Hope Church. So this series is really going through those different uh, belief statements, and there's a statement on God, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of statements. Uh, it, they talk about our, our, our beliefs on God, the Bible, the human condition, Jesus uh, Christ, the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church. Christian living and Christ's return. So in the next few weeks, we're going to go through each one of those and just talk about uh, what, what, what do we believe in this area? What do we believe in this area? What do we believe in this area? If you stick with it and if you kind of join us for this, and even if you miss a week, you can watch the message online, uh, you will have a pretty robust uh, idea of what, uh, what we would call an evangelical belief system. If you go through and you understand what we're talking about, and uh, it will help you a lot to understand uh, what are the fundamental evangelical beliefs uh, to be a follower of Jesus Christ that are taught in the Bible. And we'll look at Scripture. Obviously, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture and demonstrate some of those beliefs. But that's kind of where we're going to go. But before we and so so this weekend, we want to look at this whole idea of who is God and how is God revealed in the Bible? What does the Bible say about God, and what do we believe about God? Well, uh, first, before we talk about what, what the free church believes about God, I want to give you some what I think are inadequate views of God. And there's a number of inadequate views. Uh, the first one is, basically says there is no God. And we know that to be atheism. Atheists say there is no God. Uh, agnostics are a little less dramatic and a little less uh, decided. They would say, we don't know if there's a God or not. We can't prove whether there is or isn't. But essentially, they kind of hold that there isn't because they're not really generally on an all-out pursuit looking for God. Uh, naturalism would fall into this. And naturalism is just a, a philosophical belief that just says, we believe of all there is is this physical world. There is no spiritual world. We can't touch it. We can't see it. We can't experience it. So therefore, it isn't there. 
So that kind of falls under that whole category of uh, God isn't there. So that's one, one view, and it's held by uh, some people and, you know, a number of people, and uh, just a belief that there is no God. Uh, the, the next system is basically almost the opposite of it, and it's pantheism. And pantheism is the view that says there are many gods. There's thousands and millions of gods. Um, this is a view that's held by Hindus. Many Buddhists hold this view. Many in the, in, the, in the New Age movement, in Christian science and Scientology. And they use phrases like, God is all in all. All is God and God is all. Uh, um, they, t- they talk about uh, God is the world. Um, this is one of the, the major beliefs of Zen Buddhism, that everything and every, everything and every person is God. That plant, that animal, that person, that... Well, everything, that rock, everything is God. It's all uh, God. Uh, so that's exactly the opposite of the, the atheistic view, which says there is no God. This view says there is God. And the, the, the atheistic view says the material world is the most important. The, uh, the uh, pantheistic view says, no, the, the spirit world is the most important. So they're kind of polar opposites. Um, the next view is polytheism. And this was really held by the Greeks. Um, and if you've ever, if you ever went to school, you did a study on reading of the Greek gods, and they held to uh, this belief. But it's held in, in modern, uh, a number of modern uh, uh, groups today. For instance, the Mormons hold to polytheism. Uh, the Hindus hold to this. Um, they, are, they believe that there are many, uh, there are many finite gods existing in the world. Um, each has a personal sphere or domain. Witchcraft uh, embraces this polytheism. Um, and, you know, polytheism rejects the, the Christian view that there is only one God. Um, there are multiple gods, and uh, they aren't nature, but they're, they're forces. So you have uh, polytheism. Um, the next one is um, deism. Deism is kind of an interesting perspective. <clears throat> Think of deism as... The, the people that hold to deism say that this world is created by a God out there. And he's an impersonal God who doesn't intervene with this world. He kind of made this big clock that we call the universe. He wound it up, and now he's let it go. And it's, it's running according to his plan, right? So that's basically uh, the view of, of deism. It's really... Uh, the, it's the Christian belief without any miracles. There are no miracles. And miracle, what is a miracle? A miracle is where God intervenes in history and does something. He performs, he does something, he, 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 he heals or Jesus is born. What was, was, what was the virgin birth? Well, it was a miracle. It was God intervening in history and bringing his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. So deism is really theism, the belief of Christianity, uh, without the miracles. Um, Many of our forefathers held to a version, a form of deism. For instance, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine. Um, they basically uh, held that, uh, that God doesn't intervene through supernatural acts. Uh, many Christian, or excuse me, many English and American deists held that God regulates the world and he expects obedience to moral law, which is grounded in nature, and that, that, uh, that, uh, God had arranged for life after death, 
And the rewards are go- were going to go towards uh, in this way, that the people who did good would find good rewards, people who did bad would be punished. So that's deism. Okay? And that's a very strong belief in our popular culture today. In fact, if you were to go to the mall and ask people, uh, do you believe there's a heaven after earth? Yeah, you say, yeah, I do. Uh, do you think you'd go to heaven? And, uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, well, why? And they would say, well, um, I do enough good things. And that's just basically deism. It's basically saying, I believe that if I do enough, I'll, I'll earn a place into heaven. And that was the teaching of deism. And like I said, many of our, our early forefathers held that view. Well, obviously, the last view I want to talk about is the view that, that I believe is the true one, and that's theism, and that's the Christian view of God. And theism is a view that uh, uh, an infinite personal God created the universe, and he miraculously intervenes in his universe. And notice I said it's his universe. And he intervenes from time to time. That God both transcends, that means he's over it, he's, he's not part of creation like pantheism, He's above and beyond creation, but he's also intimately engaged with uh, his creation, meaning he's imminent. He's there. He's not like far off like the deist. So the deist would say he, he made it, but he's far off. Christianity says, no, he made it, but he's also in, in, intimately involved. Uh, the pantheist would say that he's part of it, and the Christian would say, no, he's not part of it. He made it, but he's not part of it. He's above it. And so that's uh, how those views would be different. Uh, what I want to do, and I'll have this up on, on the screen, I want to read you the free Evangelical Free Church, the FCA statement on God, because we have a statement on God, man, Jesus Christ, and all that. And we'll look at those each week. But uh, I want to read this to you so you can get an idea of the, the depth of, of our statement on God. <clears throat> Here it is. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinite, perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, having limitless knowledge and sovereign power. God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his glory. Free Church rewrote the statement probably about seven or eight years ago. and They did a really good job rewriting the statement. They made it really personal and you may not understand everything in the statement, but it's just really, uh, it really is co- comprehensive and it, it's really, I think, well written. But what I want to do is I want to talk about where can we find some of these ideas that we just read about the free church statement in the Bible. Because one of the statements, one of the, 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 one of the things about the free church is we, we have a statement and we say, Number one is we say major on the majors, and we're talking about the majors. That's what this whole series is about. But another statement we say is, where is it written? Where is it written? Meaning, and I could tell you all these different things, but the bottom line is if we can't find it in Scripture, then we should throw it out. And so uh, what I want you to do is just uh, jump over to to, uh, the book of uh, Job for a moment. We're going to look at the book of Job, chapter 38. Job, chapter 38. So Job is right before the book of Psalms, kind of sort of in the middle of the Bible. Um, it actually, the page number should be up on your screen. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, like I said, chapter 38. It's on page 411 uh, if you use the chair Bible. So let me give you a little context. Job's kind of an interesting book because what we have here is we have this dialogue between God and Satan. And basically Satan's argument is, 
you put a hedge about you put a hedge about Job. Um, if you took the, if you took all your protective hand off of him, and I were able to have my way with him, he would curse you. And God says, "Okay, I'll allow you to go this far, but no further." Again, it shows that God is sovereign; He's in control. He doesn't allow Job, uh, the, the devil to do everything. So the first round of attack was that Job lost his wealth. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his family. And uh, so then uh, he's, he's really hurt. And obviously picture losing your family, your, your sons, your, your, just all your family, your daughters. You, you lose all your wealth in, in two strokes. I mean, the messengers are following each other with bad news. And so terrible news. And so you say, okay, uh, this is bad. Uh, but that wasn't enough. Satan comes back again for a second round and says, uh, well, you know what? You took away his family. You took away his wealth. But uh, if you were to take away, Satan says, if I were to take away, if you would allow me to take away his health, then he would curse you. And God says, okay, you can take his health, but you can't take his life. So God, again, puts another boundary in Satan. Understand this. Satan is not... A, He's not omnipresent, not everywhere. He's not omniscient, doesn't know everything. He's not all-powerful. All so he's limited. And God says, you can go this far and no further. And by the way, in the book of Job, we're going to read it, God says that to everything. He says to the oceans, you go this far and no further. You go this far and no further. In other words, God is sovereignly in control. So Satan takes the health away, and, 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 and uh, Job is a mess. He's sitting there with all sorts of sores all over his body, scraping his body off with a, with a piece of pot, Pottery and his wife basically says, why don't you curse God and die? Then his friends come. And they do absolutely the right thing at the beginning. They just sit there with him for a couple of days. They don't say anything. They just sit there with him. And they just commiserate with him and just, then they begin to try to help out. They should have just said, sorry, we're going to leave now. But they don't. They begin to try to help him out. And they say, you know what? Generally, it's, it's, it's the same argument in different ways. But essentially what they're saying to Job is, we've never seen anybody who is innocent suffer. Now, that just doesn't go with life, and we know that. We've seen a lot of innocent people, good people who suffer. But that was their argument. You're suffering because you've done something to anger God. You've done something wrong, and God is punishing you. And so they go on, you know, and there's, they just they, keep, they each get their ch- chance. And Job says, as far as I know. And by the way, as you look, read the first couple chapters of Job, God says there's no one, there was no one on the earth like Job, a man that loved God more than anyone or anything. They, it doesn't say it that way, but essentially that's what he's saying. There was nobody like him, nobody more righteous than Job. So he didn't sin. It wasn't because of his sin. And he says it twice. I mean, can you imagine if God were to say to your enemy, and say, you know, there's no one on the earth like this person. They, they are righteous. That would be amazing for God. He said it twice about Job. It's, but his friends said, no, you must have done something. You must have sinned. You must have caused this to come on you. So, it just, you know, so you have these dialogues going on and on and on and on and on. And all through that, Job is basically, essentially Job's argument is, I wish I could have an audience with God. I wish I could have an audience with God. That's really all he wants. I just want to, t- I just want to talk to God about this. Isn't that what we do tend to, when we tend to go through difficult times? We say, God, where are you? I wish you were there just to talk to me. I wish you would tell me why this is happening. That's all Job was really asking for. Well, God answers it. And um, it's not what we would expect. 
Uh, Job chapter 38. Let me read uh, some verses here. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much. Who determined the dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who, which, what supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries and it burst from, as it burst from, it, from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness... For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, thus far and no further will you come. Here, you proud waves, must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? (laughs) These are some of the most powerful passages you will ever read on God. Now, he just goes on and on and on. He goes on for the rest of the chapter. Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did this? I don't remember you being there. Were you there? Because remind me if you were there when I did this. So um, what I'm suggesting here, I want to show you from the book of Job, this attribute of God, these attributes of God. And, and they come out very powerfully in this passage. And, and the question that I think that God is asking Job is the, God, the question that God is asking us this weekend. Do I deserve to be God? I'm speaking from a human level. Does God deserve to be God? Because that's really what he's saying to Job. Is it okay that I'm God? Is that okay? Because I think you're having trouble with that. So uh, I want to give you three reasons why from the book of Job passage we're going to look at why God deserves to be God. Number one, because he's all-knowing and sovereign. He's the all-knowing and sovereign creator. He basically says to Job, I made everything. It's my world. It's my earth. It's my universe. I created it. I created everything. In other words, and, and that means there's sovereignty over it. It's mine. That means that there's intelligence because it's created intelligently that means there's power because he created out of nothing the bible says beginning god created the heavens and the earth just as he created them with a word god spoke and there it was right so essentially we see a lot of attributes of god um i love the one phrase uh i don't have it in your notes but you might want to write this down uh you say well how detailed is god's sovereignty well, look at uh, Job chapter 38, verse 35. Job says, or God says this to Job. Do you send lightning bolt, bolts on their way? Do, do they report to you, here we are? Now picture this. I mean, I know it's a, it's a, it's a picture for us to see. And I, I don't know if we need to take this like super literally and say, did the lightning bolts have a voice? I don't. It's, they're personifying the, the lightning bolts. But essentially what God is saying is the lightning bolts don't go until I tell them. And they don't go, they don't go anywhere till, to where, until, unless I tell them where to go. They're on my time. They follow my orders. 
It's just, it's one of those passages that it just is stunning. And basically, the point that God is making to Job is, how much do you really know compared to me? God commands everything. He says to the waves, thus far and no further. And he goes on, he talks about the animals, and he talks about just, were you there? Do you understand? He, he does all that stuff. So God deserves to, to be God because he's all, he's all knowing and he's the sovereign creator. And again, this, this butts heads with many of the insufficient views of God that we talked about earlier. That God is above creation. He's not part of creation. He's not, uh, you know, everything in creation. He is above and beyond creation. He is transcendent over creation. He made everything. He's all powerful. He's wise. He knows everything. Secondly, God deserves to be God because we are his image bearers living in his creation. Jump down to verse uh, to chapter 40, verse 1. This is on page 413. I want to read this. Then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic. But do you have the answers? I love what Job says here. By the way, Job says exactly what he should have said. Look at what he says. Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. (laughs) Now, for some of you, you're hearing this and you go, that's God of the Old Testament. He's awfully harsh. He's making a point here. He's making a point to Job, but more importantly for us, he's making a point for us. Because we we have things backwards today. We think this is our world. We think it's our house. We think it's our car. We think it's our family. We think it's our life. God has given us freedom to choose. And God, and, and essentially that's what Job was saying. Is it, well, what's going on in my life? God says, whatever I want. You got a problem with that? Were you there when I made the creation? Do you, have you forgotten where you're living and who you belong to? See, we live in a world today where we've forgotten it's not our world, it's his world. It's not our life, it's his life. And uh, when you hear that, it flies way against our American culture. See, God placed us in his garden to bring glory for him. The Bible says in in Genesis 1.27, we were made in the image of God. We're, We're image bearers of God. Job found his audience with God. He said, all I want is an audience with God. And once he gets an audience with God, he says, shut my mouth. I don't know what I'm talking about. What's interesting to me is God never comes to him. Here's how God, here's how we, we would like God to come to us. We would like God to come to us and say, I am so sorry. Satan caught me on a bad day. Your name came up. Didn't know what to do. Kind of allowed some things to happen. Kind of got out of a little, you know, got out of hand. I am so sorry. What can I do to make it up to you? 
That's not what God does. What God does is he says to Job, I have the right to rule. I deserve to be God because I'm God. You've forgotten that you are living in my universe, in my planet, and you're made in my image. I'm sovereign. Job 41.11 says, God says this, Who has given me anything that I need to pay back? Everything under heaven is mine. Now, if you're not understanding yet that God is sovereign and over creation and in control of creation, you're not getting the book of Job. You're not getting the teaching of the Bible. Everything under heaven, you, your house, your kids, your family, your possessions, your health, your job, your money, your life, they all belong to God. Now, maybe you walked into this place and you thought they belonged to you. And you worried about your things, your stuff, your kids, your family, your car, your house payments, your job, all those things. But what you don't understand is they're not yours, they're His. When you start looking at them, like when somebody bumps into your car, you say, oh, God, God's car took a bump today. Again, Job replies in chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You, you ask, who is this who questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things too wonderful for me. So it's like, this is one of those books, when you read through this, you... You, you begin to see the holiness of God. You know, in Isaiah 6, God see, or Isaiah sees God in his glory. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord, the Lord God of, 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 of heaven. In other words, he says, this is, I should be dead right now. Moses at the burning bush walks up with his sandals and God says, take your sandals off. The place you're standing is holy ground. If my glory and my presence were here right now, you would be destroyed. And so what God is doing is he's not explaining himself to Job in a sense that he's saying this is why this happened. In fact, we have no record that God ever explained why it happened. What he explained was who he was. And Job said, because what was Job's request really? God, I don't like what you're doing here. I don't trust you. The third reason why we need to let God, because God deserves to be God, is because he's provided our salvation when we trust in him. So I want to close with this. Very interesting. So remember I said there were three, there were actually four friends that come to Job. And they basically say, Job, you sinned. You must have done something wrong. And uh, Job says, no, I don't think I have sinned. And, um, and, and basically he refutes a number of their arguments through the, through the whole book. But then Job basically says, um, 
I just really want to have an audience with God. So he finally has this audience with God. And God, God's not really chewing him out as much as he's saying, you need to know who I am. You need to be good with that I'm God. And that your biggest problem is, you know, here's what I've noticed in my life. Maybe it's not true in your life. What I've noticed is when I'm worried, when I stress, when I'm freaking out, uh, it's because I have basically thought I was in charge and I'm in control. And I've forgotten that God is sovereign and God is in control and he's over everything. And not only that, there's something else. And this is the part that we need to put together so that we understand it. So uh, God gets done with Job. And then he says this to Job's friends. And I want you to see this. This is on page 414. And it's uh, Job chapter 42, verse 7. Very interesting what he says here. He says, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Elipaz and the uh, Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately. Notice, not about Job, but about me, as my servant Job has. Now, wait a minute. God basically said Job didn't really say anything that was wrong about God. But God still told him who who he was because he forgot who he was. But then he says this. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. Notice that. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve for you have not spoken accurately about my servant as Job has. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Because what is God doing here? God is, you know, as you read the book of Job, uh, you realize that God is not only creator, he's not not only sovereign, he's not only all-knowing, but he also cares for us. See, it's one thing for somebody to be powerful and all-knowing, but if they don't love you, then they can be harsh and, and cruel and wicked, right? Or the opposite is they, they could be incredibly loving, but they don't have any power or they don't have any wisdom. They don't have any knowledge. So they love you, but they, they can't help you. God is both. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful, but he's all-loving, too. You say, where do you see that? Well, notice what's going on. Uh, one of the things we need to see and what we're seeing here is that God is, is doing something in the book of Job, and he's using Job as a picture of something else. See, what Job's friends do is they were bringing, an off, they were bringing offerings to him as a sacrifice for the sins. In other words, Job was becoming a mediator between them and God. That's what a high priest did and what the priest did. But Job became a mediator between God and him. And what happens is, we look, read the New Testament, is that we see Job, or Jesus is a better Job. Because what, is Job, what does Jesus do? Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes and saves us. So just as Job was the, not the innocent, but the guilty one, and though he was without sin, he was guilty of trusting God in a sense, but he was the one who was the guilty interceder that God appointed to bring a sacrifice for the friends. But Jesus isn't guilty. So Jesus is a true and better Job. Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes and saves us. Now, the New Testament tells us that in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is only one God 
and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. So here Jesus is functioning as Job did with his friends. Job was a fallen human being. Jesus was the perfect human being, perfectly kept the law, who is God. God became man in the flesh. We'll talk about that in weeks to come. But essentially, Jesus became the ultimate reconciler between God and man, the ultimate mediator between God and man. And we know the most famous, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible of what? John 3:16. For God so loved the world, his world, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we have a God who's not all-powerful, not only all-powerful, all-knowing, and sovereign, but we have a God who's loving, who's willing to give everything, who gives the best that he could give, and he gives his ultimate son. And Jesus, who is God, willingly gives his life on the cross. He, didn't, he, wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't forced into it. He didn't just give his life. He chose to give his life. You see, God sent his one and only son to die for us. Jesus became the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And he's become a mediator between us and God. God became man. We can't reach God, so God reached down to us through his son. So there's a lot of theology here. But we have a God who isn't just sovereign. He isn't just all-powerful, all-knowing. He laid the world out, and he's above and beyond the world, but he's intimately involved. And he miraculously intercedes in the world. And the greatest demonstration of the miraculous interceding of the world was when Jesus Christ was born in a manger. And when Jesus Christ, it says, John, John's gospel said, he tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. He walked with us. And he died for us. And so we have a God who just not only is sovereign over the world, but is interceding in the world. And it, I, I believe still intercedes today with miracles. That's the God we serve. That's the Christian God. That's the one we believe in. He is one God. He is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they all work in conjunction with each other. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But what I wanted you to see here today was our God is very different than any other view of God that is held in the world today. But that's our statement on God. And we'll look at the ones uh, in the coming weeks. But I would love to have you just stand with me right now. Let's pray. So, Father, as we look at this passage in Job, these passages in Job, we see that you are seemingly unapproachable and harsh. But yet we look at uh, other passages, and there are some in the Old Testament, but as we look at the New Testament passages, you are loving. You are amazing. You sacrifice. You sent your son, and Jesus himself gave his life. You love us to the point that, to the furthest extent, extent that love could ever reach by giving your life for us. Thank you for Jesus, who has become the one and only mediator between God and man. Thank you for placing us in your world. And may we have a different perspective of this world in our lives and our families and our possessions today because we have interacted with your word. And may we walk humbly before you. May we understand that you have a perfect plan for our lives. And we are loved by you. So you're not only willing, but you're able to guide and direct us in our lives. And thank you, Father, that you're sovereign over the whole process. 
and we may not understand it. But in those times when we go through those difficult, dark times, may we trust you that you have things under control and that you love us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.